to the May 2019 edition of HCI at UCD, a monthly podcast with our seminar series guests. I'm Justin Edwards, a PhD student here at UCD, and today I'm joined by Professor Lucy Yardley, a professor of health psychology at the University of Bristol and director of LifeGuide, a research program at the University of Southampton focusing on digital interventions. Thank you for joining me today, Lucy. Thank you very much for asking me. So your seminar talk today is about the person-based approach that LifeGuide developed. Could you explain for our audience the goals and the kind of founding principles of a person-based approach? Um, the, the main aim of a person-based approach, the person-based approach, I guess, because we, we call it the PBA these days, is uh, to understand our users and their context and therefore their needs, their preferences, and that allows us to design the interventions so that they're going to really find them um, engaging, useful, persuasive, and so on. Right, okay, so tailored kind of at the individual and at individual groups, you would say, or? Absolutely, but it's it's not just about tailoring, uh, it's very much about the tone and uh, the kinds of language you use, the kinds of messages that people are going to find convincing and so on. Right, I see. Um, so the person-based approach, um, I, I read on the LifeGuide website, so the, the kind of three stages are planning, optimization, and evaluation of any intervention. And uh, what, what kind of caught my interest is the idea of optimization while an intervention is in progress. Uh, what kind of like changes are made to an ongoing intervention? Like at what time scale are these made? Is it as a person's on the website, you know, updating for the next time they're on? Or? Uh, that's a lovely idea. We don't have that kind of adaptive <laughs> sure. technology at the moment. Sure. Uh, in future, yes, I can certainly imagine that. No, by optimization, um, we really just mean uh, the process of refining the intervention based on user feedback until uh, we've got rid of all the problems. Uh, of course, user-centered design is very familiar with this kind of process, sure. um, and, and it, part of it is to do with, uh, of course, helping people navigate and making sure that uh, the, the stuff is accessible and so on. But because we're behavioral psychologists, actually for us, the optimization is an awful lot about making sure that, for example, we have targeted the concerns that people have, that we have taken into account the beliefs and attitudes they're bringing to the intervention, so that it's kind of optimization, not just in terms of the functionality and accessibility and so on, but very much in terms of uh, making the messages fit with people's beliefs and preferences and concerns and so on. Right, I see. Uh, so in, in terms of getting that feedback from people who are using these sorts of interventions, is, is this something that's elicited by the people running it, or is this kind of a free-flowing conversation that uh, starts with the, the person using this system? Like, how, how does that feedback come to you as the researcher? Well, in the person-based approach, we use formal, qualitative, and mixed methods research to do it. So uh, there's, you could use any kinds of qualitative methods, and observation would be lovely, but it's very resource-intensive. So what we tend to do is lots and lots of uh, interviews, and especially at the optimization stage, think-aloud interviews. Oh, right. So we get people to use the intervention um, while we're sitting with them, and think-aloud as they go through giving us their reactions to every element and why they use certain bits, why they don't use others, how it makes them feel, what they think of the messages. And uh, we we get that feedback 
Um, when we've got it from a few users, we collate it, we discuss it with our research team, which includes stakeholders and co-design participants. Um, we decide how we're going to address any of the problems that people are having and, and any negative reactions to the content and, or the format. Um, then we change the intervention and we go out and do more interviews and think aloud interviews. And we carry on that process until we think we've got it as good as we can. Uh, we're not getting any major new issues coming out of further think aloud interviews. And at that point, we do what we, are, we call longitudinal qualitative studies, where we give people the intervention to go off and try and use in real life for a couple of weeks. And then we interview them about how that went and whether there are any new issues that arose from them using it in the real world. Okay, very interesting. I'm, I'm especially fascinated that part of that uh, optimization is, is not just getting the feedback from users, but then having co-design as part of it. So it's, it's actual you, people who might potentially use these sorts of interventions, part of the design process and part of hearing what feedback from other users are, correct? That's exactly right. Now, we always have co-design right from the start. So uh, we would have members uh, of the stakeholder groups um, as part of the research design from the proposal stage onwards and a part of the planning of the intervention. Um, the really interesting thing is that uh, what you get from the qualitative research is different from what you get from the people that are part of the research team. So the people from the research team, um, the people who join your research team, even though they're members of the public, just by the nature of things, are going to be a bit more enthusiastic about what you're doing. Um, and with our interventions, we're always trying to reach the whole of the population and especially people that are more sceptical or less willing to engage because they're often people that are in more need of the intervention. Sure. So we're talking about people with less education or um, other resources. Um, so we, we will have our research design team um, and, and we will create the intervention and then we'll go out and try it out with people that are from a very different social economic background and we'll get very very different reactions and then bring it back and, and I, I, I'm happy to say that you know when our um, co-designers um, see the evidence that it's not reaching other members of the population then they're absolutely happy for us to take it in a slightly different direction or maybe get, make it simpler or change the messages so that it will reach um, parts of the population that they're possibly not quite so representative of. Right, yeah, that's, that's very interesting that you you have these very enthusiastic members of the public helping out, but then you're, you're really trying to reach the, the members of the public that might not have that same enthusiasm. Do you have certain kind of techniques or strategies for uh, identifying people who are skeptical of this sort of thing, but still might be willing to at least test it out? For our clinical trials, yeah. uh, we send out letters to everybody with, say, diabetes in a particular practice. So we, we do the same thing at this early stage where we're trying to get um, users to do the qualitative studies. And basically, we offer to pay them. Right. <laughs> and we make sure that our invitation makes it very clear that we're interested in their views. We, um, we don't we, we, we welcome negative feedback. Uh, we make the invitation letters very, very simple. Uh, we make it clear that they're going to be fully paid. And therefore, it's actually quite a nice source of income, sort of quite low stress for people that maybe aren't, aren't working or aren't working full time. And that way you can get people that have got lower levels of income and, and, and education to take part. Right, that makes a lot of sense. It's a very kind of elegant solution to the, the problem of getting people who don't necessarily want to take part uh, at, at first glance. 
So LifeGuide has been um, an active research group for over a decade now. In your view, how has the the digital intervention world evolved from kind of the pre-LifeGuide days to the beginning of that project and on to today? How has how has this this community changed over the years? Oh, it's changed almost beyond recognition. <laughs> when we started out, um, during the years when I was trying to get funding for LifeGuide, uh, I actually encountered a lot of scepticism and ignorance among people about what digital interventions were or that they would ever uh, be widely used. Ab- about a year after we started creating the software, digital health started to take off and uh, people were less sceptical that it, it would become widespread. Uh, uh, to start with, digital interventions were extremely simple and the way people thought about them uh, was very traditional. So. You used to have interventions that had been delivered face-to-face in, say, 10 one-hour sessions with an expert, and the, the digital interventions were 10 modules that encapsulated that uh, session in a sort of interactive session with homework for people to do and so on. Um, and they were really tedious, and they expected people to engage an awful lot with the intervention. Um, and they were really only suitable for people with high levels of motivation and education. And I really quite early on started trying to move my digital interventions in the direction of being uh, much briefer, requiring less sustained engagement, um, being more something that could sort of fit into everyday life. But during the last 10 years, of course, as people have started to use uh, digital technology on mobile phones, then the whole idea of sitting down at your laptop to do some digital work for half an hour or more uh, has really gone out the window and people are much more expecting to sort of get just-in-time reminders as notifications on their phone or being able to spend a couple of minutes waiting at a bus stop um, looking at, at whatever the latest bit of advice is that we're trying to deliver to them. So really the way that one designs these interventions has evolved enormously. Not everybody is actually doing it in in the kind of mobile-friendly way yet, but uh, I think obviously the next stage on from that is sensing-based uh, interventions, which right. will be a whole new arena again. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to hear that it's it's not just that the the approaches from the research community have changed over time, but it's the, the, the people, the way people actually use technologies changed as time has gone on, that it's a moving target, that as you change your own approaches, people are changing what they're kind of expecting out of that anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, one one thing that struck me about the the person-based approach in general is the the deeply mixed methods nature of the entire approach. That there's a, a real uh, there's obviously a backbone in qualitative research and uh, as you said the talk aloud interviews, all of the the different qualitative elements. But then there is also an element of quantitative data analysis and you know seeing uh, a, a quantitative way of what your results are from these interventions. How do uh, how do those two elements, how do the quantitative and qualitative of inform each other throughout uh, the life cycle of an intervention? Well, you're absolutely right that it is mixed methods absolutely the heart. Uh, for example, I, I'm quite old-fashioned. I still believe in the good old randomised controlled trial as the ultimate test of whether the intervention that I've developed is cost-effective in the real world. 
um, or as close to it as we can get with a pragmatic clinical trial. And so, for example, for the first five years that um, my team were developing interventions, we were evolving the person-based approach, but we didn't tell anybody about it because I didn't want to tell anybody about it until I had what I considered good proof that it actually worked, which for me was a randomised controlled trial showing that in a large sample of people, they actually improved their health. Um, so that's how I see the methods as uh, complementary at a very fundamental level, that all the qualitative work where users tell us what they th they think will be helpful to them and, and attractive to them and so on, that's just what people are telling you. They may be being nice to you, or they may just not really be aware of what is really going to drive their behaviour and therefore their health outcomes. And so um, it's only when I see the objective evidence, you know, that they have actually lost weight or improved health or so on, that I feel confident that um, the qualitative methods and the user input were leading us in the right direction. So that's one way I see them as completely complementary. And of course, the other is in terms of looking at the usage of the intervention. So with our LifeGuide software, um, the great thing was that we ha had all of the details of usage. We could look at um, the amount of time that people spent on every single page of the intervention, uh, the pathways that they took through it and so on. We haven't been able to do those detailed analyses of every intervention, but we've done enough of that to be able to have a very good idea of uh, what kinds of things people use and what is enough usage of the intervention to achieve a, a good effect. And, and one of the really interesting and useful things that has come out of that is that I think people tend to think more is better in terms yeah. in, of interventions and that so a stickier intervention that keeps people engaging for longer uh, is a better intervention. Now, if you're a commercial provider, that's true because you get paid for people to be continuing to, to use your intervention. Um, however, if you're just trying to change health outcomes, that isn't necessarily true. And for quite a long time now, I've been trying to design my interventions so that the, the least amount of digital engagement will lead to the greatest sustained behaviour change. And there are actually good ways that you can do that to sort of try and give people a few key messages that will change the way they think or may change how they structure their environment so that in future, um, the way they think and their environment will keep the behaviour change going and they don't ever have to come back and engage with the digital intervention again. I, I quite like that idea of the giving you know just enough that it's as effective as possible but not trying to give people too much and that this this whole idea segues kind of perfectly into the next thing that I wanted to ask but I, I have a great appreciation in any sort of HCI uh, research for simplicity and for uh, ways things can uh, be integrated into people's everyday lives so can you think of an intervention that you helped to develop or evaluate that kind of stuck with you for having a very simple or very kind of lightweight idea that way, or maybe a few things that, uh, a few guidelines you've learned that way in terms of simplicity? The, there is an intervention um, that we're halfway through trialing at the moment that I'm actually very excited about. Um, it's called ARC, which is Antibiotic Review Kit. And it was an intervention that we developed to help uh, hospital doctors reduce 
usage of antibiotics in hospital, which is to try to reduce the, the increase in antimicrobial resistance, which actually killed one of my friends. So it's quite close to my heart. Um, and what we did was uh, started off with a stakeholder workshop with a lot of um, senior and junior doctors and from various specialties. And we proposed to them what we thought was going to go into the intervention that we'd got funded to do. Um, and it was a mixture of quite standard things like education and methods of audit and review and so on. And they said to us, well, we already do this. There's loads and loads of educational resources and we've got all these guidelines and we do audit and review already. It's mandated by the Department of Health. None of that is actually working. So I said, well, why isn't it working? Why do people stay on antibiotics when they don't need them in hospital? And they said, well, the problem is that the junior doctor usually does the review. It's often a senior doctor that initially prescribed the antibiotics and the junior doctor doesn't know why they are prescribed and doesn't dare overturn that prescription because they don't know why and the other guy was senior. So in response to that, we actually came up with a reclassification of the first antibiotic prescription so that basically the prescriber just puts that it's due to possible infection or probable infection. Then when the second person, the junior doctor, comes to review, they see that and if they see possible and actually some evidence has come in since then, either the patient seems to be getting better anyway or they've got evidence that it's due to something, their problem is due to something that isn't infection, they stop the antibiotics, they feel confident to do that. And in the feasibility trial, prescribing, uh, stopping the antibiotics has gone up from 9% uh, with their current procedures to 30%, which is probably as much as is safe. Now, you might say, what's the digital thing here? We had, I managed to get it down to an app training that you could do in less than 10 minutes uh, that takes you through. It's got all the motivational stuff about why it's important not to prescribe antibiotics. It's got case studies of people like my friend that die because antibiotics were prescribed. Um, it's got uh, little case studies at the end that people can practice uh, whether they should or should not prescribe antibiotics so that they test themselves. It's all just a 10 minute digital training, which all the staff in the hospital get. We've managed to get it embedded into their usual education that they have to do every year. And it's become so popular so quickly that actually we're doing what's called a stepped wedge trial, which is we're rolling it out to 36 hospitals and we're looking at antibiotic prescribing rates before and after. But actually, um, we finished recruiting the hospitals in April and the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy um, rolled out the intervention in May because they believe in it so much oh, that's that fantastic. they're not even waiting for the evidence. Yeah, that's, that's just the sort of beautifully elegant uh, solution and intervention that I love. It's a 10-minute app and a, a binary tick box there, and that's, that's the entire intervention. But there is actually a little follow-up, because I don't want you to feel that sort of the, there isn't much scope for the digital in here, sure. because actually um, we also have a follow-up for Program Grant, which is looking at how to put that system into e-prescribing systems All in right. the hospital, because actually there are limitations to our intervention, which is it's a standalone app, it's not embedded in what you do, and we're going to embed it in e-prescribing systems that will then prompt the doctor did you know the information's just come back from the lab that it isn't an infection? Would you like to review uh, the prescription and so on? 
uh, yeah, it, and my background as a, a psychology student there kind of gave was given away that oh, I don't even care about not hearing the digital stuff. The the psychology is just so elegant there. You've you've been involved in a lot of great work across many different kind of areas of health psychology throughout your career. Uh, are there any kind of topics or projects that especially bring you joy to work in that are uh, especially rewarding fields to to be involved in? Well, really, where I started from is the field that. I enjoy most, which is doing illness management, illness self-management interventions for neglected uh, conditions that are not, there is a a lovely user phrase that I heard earlier this week, they're not life-threatening, but they are life-destroying. The person that said this was somebody who had the latest condition that I'm working with, which is teenage uh, urinary incontinence, which is like poor teenage people that um, are still bedwetting and and having difficulty not going to the loo during the school day, which, as you can imagine, is an absolutely terrible thing for them. But it's the kind of thing that the NHS doesn't really prioritise because it's not actually life-threatening. And I I started off with a condition just dizziness in older people. One in five people are dizzy. It doesn't kill you. Um, There's very little resource for it in the NHS. There's very simple exercises that people can do that help them, um, but nobody ever gets to hear about them. So I love it when you get a condition like that, you can turn it into a sort of self-management package that people are confident to use. And that actually takes a bit of skill because people often have had these symptoms for years. They don't think anything can be done about them. They don't have the confidence to do the things that they need to do unless you you package it all just right for them. But if you do package it all just right, you can roll it out, you don't need any clinicians, and you can reach loads of people and enhance their lives very, very cheaply and effectively. And they are so grateful and you get such lovely emails and letters from them. Uh, that's That's must be very rewarding to hear back from people that you can kind of directly touch their lives in that way. That's interesting to me as well that there's there's clever ways to package these things to get digital interventions rolled out in a way that doesn't need uh, doesn't necessarily have to have a clinician in the loop to be very effective that it can be really based on the the individual user of the the intervention right that it's it's something that's I'm sure not not in all cases but in some cases can be entirely something the user does themselves and has a big effect on their own lives absolutely and and I actually take a pride in the fact that um, in quite a few conditions of this kind. So um, breathing retraining for asthma, for example, recently, the dizziness therapy that I was talking about. The clinicians that I've worked with have been absolutely convinced, and some of the patients have been really convinced that you can't possibly do this kind of therapy uh, without a health professional um, help and support. And so we have run the clinical trials with a routine care control arm, a digital intervention only arm, and the arm that was meant to be the gold standard one, which is the digital intervention plus the uh, clinician support. And in both the two most recent trials, the digital intervention only arm did at least as well as the one with support. Uh, And I think that's down to doing really, really careful um, development of the intervention so that you make sure that it is really um, answers all the questions that people would have put to a human but can't and and offers all the kinds of support that a human human would and if you do that really well then uh, you often quite can cut out the the middleman and for these neglected conditions that's absolutely essential because they're never going to be able to fund enough human support for them. 
that's that's fantastic to hear that it's it seems that really careful thoughtful work with the people in question here that this person-based approach to it is just so effective and so uh, so efficient in getting people the care that they need and giving it giving really high quality care it's it's the sort of thing that makes me really hopeful about both uh, the, the potentials of things like social psychology and health psychology as well as HCI that people can have really positive outcomes on their own lives with pretty simple kind of interventions that if, if people listen to what they're saying, work with them, uh, it seems that there's really good outcomes from it. Absolutely. And that, that was my sort of dream and vision when I started going into digital health, that it could be a really positive thing to sort of empower people. And I think, you know, that was 10 years ago when I think everybody was sort of a, a, a little more naive and sort of hopeful about the digital world. But I mean, it still is bringing us loads of benefits like that, despite all the, the other hiccups that we've had along the way. Well, it's, it's delightful to hear about, and thank you so much for uh, sharing all of these insights with our listening audience. I think this is the sort of thing that's going to make people just really excited to hear. I know it's I've been smiling this whole time at some of these uh, some of these results and outcomes. So, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, Lucy. Thank you too. The HCI at UCD podcast is available at hci.ucd.ie, where you can also find our guest seminar presentation slides and more information about the UCD HCI community. You can also find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow HCI underscore UCD on Twitter to keep up with our research group. Our theme music is Robot Park by Poddington Bear. (laughs) 